Translation. In normal conditions, in the absence of danger, O King Yudhishthira, a man should perform his prescribed activities according to his status of life, with the things, endeavors, process, and living place that are not forbidden for him, and not by any other means. Srila Prabhupada Purport. This instruction is given for men in all statuses of life. Generally, society is divided into brahmanas, kshatriyas, vaishas, shudras, brahmacharis, vanaprastas, sannyasis, and grihastas. Everyone must act according to his position and try to please the Supreme Personality of Godhead, for that will make one's life successful. This was instructed in Naima Sharanya. Atapumbir dvijasheshta banashrama vibhagasha svanushtitasya dharmasya sangsidhir haritoshanam. O best among the twice born, it is therefore concluded that the highest perfection one can achieve by discharging his prescribed duties, dharma, according to caste divisions and order of life, is to please the Lord Hari. Bhagavatam 1 2 13. Everyone should act according to his occupational duties just to please the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Then, everyone will be happy. Om Ajnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshur Unmilitam Jena Tasmai Shri Guravena Mahashila Prabhupada Ki Chai Who's speaking in this verse? Who's speaking? Narada Muni. Who's he speaking to? Ladies. Yudhishthir. Narada Muni, can we trust him? Can we trust him? What do you think? He's here in the Bhagavatam, but I've heard that Narada Muni sometimes says things that are a little bit, you know, unshastric, such as kill all the children of Vasudeva and Devaki, because you never know who's going to kill you. Is that shastric? Or all you boys, uh, all you... Hariyashvas and Sabalashvas should come and join my movement. Okay? Is that what we call family-centered preaching? Okay? <laughs> Can we trust him? Occasionally he says things that are, shall we say, uh, appropriate. Yes, they're tricky. They're appropriate to time, place, and circumstance. But usually... So I'm a little bit confused. I need someone to help me out. On the one hand, I read that Srimad Bhagavatam is Nigamakalpataror Galitam Palam. Galitam Palam, the ripened fruit. You see? The ripened fruit. Not the fruit with any green bits that we can peel off and throw away. It's not the fruit that has any stone that you can take out and throw away. There's nothing in the Bhagavatam that's to be thrown away. Indeed, Bhagavatam, we find... The declaration of, in the contents page, in the olden days they didn't have a contents page, that, but the first few verses of the book would tell you what was inside the book. What this book is about is as follows. So we find that the Bhagavatam is a book for people who are not tricky. They don't speak according to time, place and circumstance. They just want the truth now and forevermore. It's Galitam Palam, it's a ripened fruit. You see? And Dharma Projita Kaitava Otra, it's not Kaitava. It's not cheating. It's not religion where you want to get something or you want to say something that's duplicitous. 
So I'm a little bit confused because sometimes it seems as if when Narada Muni speaks, we don't get the truth. So who can help me? Please. Sureshwar. He's following the tricky cowherd boy. So in this verse, when he's speaking about Varnashram Dharma, is he being tricky or is he being straight and truthful? Crooked or straight? What do you think? This is just to make sure everybody's awake, that's all. Well, I mean, he's talking about Varnashram Dharma. Varnashram Dharma. In normal conditions, in the absence of danger, O King Yudhishthir, a man should perform his prescribed activities according to his status of life, with the things, endeavors, process, and living place that are not forbidden for him, and not by any other means. Crooked or straight? Yeah? Straight? Okay. You're sure about that? Okay. So... Why is it then that we find that um, most of our acharyas talk about being bhakti as being beyond varnashram considerations? We can transcend our varnashram considerations. Is varnashram material or spiritual? Is it part of the packaging or is it part of the fruit? I'm a little bit confused this morning. Can someone help me? Maybe some of the younger devotees, if it's fresh in your mind. I learned these things a long time ago. Hmm? Young man, you have Goranga tattooed on your arm, which means that uh, you're pretty into this transcendence of Varna and Ashram. Yeah? Do you have a a thought to share? Well, I mean, Lord Chaitanya says it's not a, a designation, right? Well, it's just a designation to be in, in the Varnashram system, but ultimately you have to be in, have to be in one of the ashrams. You can't just be floating about, you know, just doing anything. You know, it would be in one set, you know, ashram, like one period at a time. We can't really pretend to be a Brahmacharya and we're going to be asked or try to be a Sinhasa in the world, or then we would be in one of them. That's why I'm a little bit confused because on the one hand I read that we're above everything because we're spirit soul but on the other hand I read verses like this that says that you in normal conditions you're meant to be in one of these four actually one of these eight Ananta, what would you say? Well it seems by objective analysis there are rules and there are exceptions to rules Right. Okay. Well, I shall try. I shall try to stop being confused. That's helped me a little bit. Let's read on. So, Prabhupada, in his purport in the line of Narada Muni says that this instruction is given for men in all statuses of life. And then he names the statuses of life. He calls it a status. Society, generally, society is divided into four stages of life and four occupational divisions. Why? 
These things are things. The occupational divisions is how you make money. That's what it is. It's how you put bread and butter and maybe a little bit of jam on the table so that you and your family can eat. Or how you can put ghee on your rice and maybe a little bit of ghee on your roti. Everybody has to eat. When Bhishma Dev was giving instructions, similar instructions on householders, he said, the first thing a householder needs is space to be a householder. Space. Then you need shelter. And what to speak of householders, everybody needs space to do what their occupational duty is. Even when we find the story of Narada Muni, there he is again, Narada Muni and the cobbler, we find that a cobbler had space to be a cobbler. And the Brahmin had space to be a Brahmin. Everybody needs a place to do what it is Shastra tells them to do. Okay, And then we need instructions. We need to know what it is that I'm meant to do and what things are forbidden. As we were hearing from Jayadweta Maharaj the other day, in a time of emergency, we can do so many different things because the highest principle is to save uh, a life. Shiva Ram Swami was telling me, well, I was just in Hungary over Janmashtami, that he had a, a great uh, uh, pain and he had to get to the hospital. And he gave an instruction, go through all the red lights. As he, he was driving. You know, he, well, he wasn't driving, he was just in agony in the back seat. But he told his uh, brahmachari who was driving, he said, go through every single red light. Uh, get me there quickly. And it was a good job that he did because it was an emergency. In some countries, if you ring 999 or 911 or 108, uh, they say that in India, you can get a pizza quicker than you can get an ambulance. You ring for a pizza and it will be delivered be writhing in agony at the side of the road and ring the emergency services and you may be pizza by the time it arrives. So this is an emergency. Go through the red lights. Now under normal circumstances, when there's no emergency, you stop at a red light. That's what it means to be part of society. And if you, under normal circumstances, you go through a red light and a policeman catches you, you cannot say, I'm transcendental to all these things. This is your society. This is not my society. I'm part of another society called ISKCON. This is our society. He will say, I'm sorry, sir. If you're living in this country, you're part of our society. So this is another thing that we have to take into consideration. Whose society are you living in? You have to follow the laws. When Prabhupada was or when uh, Prabhupada Vishnu was driving uh, Prabhupada around uh, London, uh, he wanted to take Prabhupada for a uh, japa walk. And uh, this was every morning Prabhupada would go on a japa walk. So He parked on a, a double yellow line. So Prabhupada said, what do these two yellow lines mean? And he said, well, Prabhupada, that means don't park here. So Prabhupada said, so why you are parking here? Park somewhere else. Prabhupada wanted him to follow the laws. So he was part of two societies. One, he was part of the ISKCON society, 
which is a missionary society dedicated to practicing, preaching, living, teaching the principles of um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and sharing those with the greater society which is made up of others who are following some rules but not rules which can necessarily deliver you to the feet of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Uh, but some of their rules you have to follow. But some of our rules they don't have to follow. There's one small society living within a big society. You can pretend to say goodbye to that society, but I think you'll find that when you get to the airport or any kind of port, you'll have to follow some rules. You have to present your passport for instance, so that you can get past the port. And this, on behalf of the Queen or the United States government, gives you access to any other country. You can go in and out. Even in the city of Dwarka, you had to present a passport to get in. Otherwise, you could be anybody. Stop. Who goes there? Are you friend or foe? We have to know you know. I have gifts for Lord Sri Krishna. Enter, friend. <laughs> so in any society, you have to be a card-carrying member of that society. Uh, what is this Varna Ashram? Is Iskon a Varna Ashram society? Mm. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. Sometimes... We're a little bit like the embryo in the womb. Is it a human being or is it not? Well, it's potentially a human being, say some. It's potentially a human being. It kind of looks like a human being. And one day it will become a human being. But at the moment it's not human. So sometimes people, they look at our ISKCON society and they think, is this a... Varna Ashram Society? Is it a small preaching institution? Is it a group of people who belong to greater society? Uh, who are they? And what are they trying to achieve? And sometimes we in ourselves become confused as to identity. Just like the sannyasi who was once being asked, it was here, he was being asked about Varna Ashram Society. And at that point he became very annoyed. And he held on to his dunda very tightly and he said, we have nothing to do with Varnashram. Of course, he's there as a sannyasi, one of the eight divisions of, we have nothing to do with Varnashram. Maharaj, I think you'll find that um, brahmacharis, vanaprastas, sannyasis and grihastas have something to do with the ashram. Now, um, Sometimes we have uh, we have a very good notion of what is ashram. Ashram simply means the divisions of life. So when you're young, generally speaking, you're a brahmachari, which means you're a celibate student. And the main thing for brahmacharis is learning. Jayati Maharaj ki jai. We were just talking about you, Maharaj. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't him. <laughs> so, um, sorry, I've just been to countries where Bhagavatam class is a little bit more playful. 
Everybody's very sober here. But that's all right. So we have, we have some nod of the head towards an ashram system. You know, we have grihastas, and we basically understand that grihastas are married. And the jury is kind of out whether Iskand devotees should be, you know, um, living together before they get married, or maybe did Prabhupada say, you know, stay together for a year or two, or um, maybe you have to be initiated before you get a fire yagya, or it's very, very confusing. So let there be no confusion. Marriage begins with a fire yagya. Begins with a fire yagya, and it ends with a fire yagya. One man was telling me how he, no, one man was telling me how he, he took sannyas. This was in South India. He'd been married for, oh, he'd been married for 45 years, something like that. And every, and his guru had just asked him, his guru is the head of the Ahobalam Mat. And his guru had just asked him, he said, because his guru had a heart problem, he said, okay, and now I, it's time for me to pick the next Acharya. So they picked the next Acharya many years before it's time for him to implement his role, just so that he has a, you know, he has some time to accommodate his role and learn how to, you know, be the Acharya. There are many other things incumbent upon the leader of a, uh, of a, uh, a community. So he was chosen and his guru said, that means you, now you must, uh, take sannyas. So every day of his life, this man had done, uh, the different fire yagyas that a householder is meant to do, all the prescribed ritualistic activities that a man is supposed to do. This was in the Sri Vaishnava Sampradaya, so it's very, um, uh, uh, bound by, uh, daily duties. And so he and his wife came to the, uh, temple. And he performed the last of every grihastha activity, the last fayagya. And then his wife, they, they said farewell. The wife went home and uh, he went to the uh, uh, river. He shaved his head and he spent the rest of the afternoon studying Shastra. And the following morning, he was initiated as a, uh, a sannyasi or a yati. Which means that now that there's very many duties uh, incumbent upon him. But anyway, there should be no confusion. That um, confusion reigns when we have uh, fuzzy areas in between the ashrams. And uh, sometimes mm, people who are trying to follow the ashram system like to do that because basically living in any kind of ashram is uncomfortable. Um, to be a brahmachari is to be uncomfortable. There is tapasya involved. But to be a grihasta, let me tell you, there's an equal and proportionate amount of tapasya. Uh, to be a vanaprastha, and one day we'll find out what that actually means, but um, it's actually um, uncomfortable. It's actually uncomfortable. And to be a sannyasi is uncomfortable. To be a sannyas is uncomfortable, but there's a proportionate level of discomfort in each of the ashrams. Now, what happens is that people try to offload the discomfort of one ashram onto the next. So we have brahmacharis who like to get rid of the comfortable, uh, the, the discomfort of having to be in be at the beck and call of the spiritual master. 
Basically, brahmachari means to live in the ashram of the spiritual master. And uh, that means that if the guru calls you to eat, you eat. If the guru doesn't, you fast. Okay? Now, he may always call you to eat. That's okay. But it means putting yourself in a position where he may or may not. It means performing menial tasks. One time Sachinandan Swami um, told me that um, Srila Prabhupada had told him what were the tasks for a brahmachari. He says, cleaning for the spiritual master, uh, cooking for the spiritual master, carrying things for the spiritual master, and caring for the spiritual master's physical, physical needs. So um, it is said that the uh, the guru is always looking f to the spiritual welfare of the disciple. Um, but the disciple should always be looking at the physical welfare of the spiritual master. Never forget to feed me, Prabhupada said. Never forget to feed me. So physical means that you look after the body of the spiritual master and the extension of his body and mind, which is his mission. You preserve his teachings, you preserve his legacy, because the um, uh, disciple is the person that takes that on into the future. Now, um, the reason uh, uh, we try to uh, offload the discomfort of one ashram onto the other, or borrow the comforts of one ashram uh, and make them our own, is that because basically we are trying to live in an ashram system that in, in which discomfort is inbuilt and which we still have a tendency towards uh, comfort and enjoyment. Therefore, we're trying to use the ashram system in order to get enjoyment and to offload the uh, discomfort. We try to balance that. And so, um, uh, um, you know, you find that um, you find that this leads to to. Um, uh, Ashram Shankara, you know, the mix, mixing of the ashrams. Comfortable brahmacharis who have no spiritual authority. Uh, and this, of course, happens in Iskon a great deal because the guru is a sannyasi who is traveling. So the disciple is living in the ashram as a brahmachari, part of the brahmachari ashram, but cares to... Uh, not see the temple authority as a spiritual authority, but as a managerial um, uh, position only. So that is a problem. Grihastas who don't um, uh, provide for their families. Grihastas who do not provide for their families. Grihastas who decide that they don't really want to be Grihastas, but they want to have the comforts of doing something else. Vanaprastas who want the comforts of home but want a different kind of status. So we pick and choose. Unfortunately, you cannot pick and choose. Sannyasis who, uh, they like the accoutrement of um, householder life, but the renunciation element uh, they find um, uncomfortable. So th this can lead to a great confusion in any society. Why? Because there's fuzziness. There's fuzziness. 
And social organization depends on clarity. Clarity of roles and the clarity of interaction between those roles. So how to get this, how to get this right? And it's really a little bit like, um, if I say to you, what is the most important thing? Is it, um, oxygen? Or is it, um, is it, is it, uh, is it lungs? What's the most important thing? Oxygen or lungs? The air that you breathe or lungs? Huh? But how both? But I want air. So air is the most important, right? Oh, okay. I get it now. Thank you. Yes, lungs are not very nice to look at, are they? Have you ever seen lungs? Separate from the body? You ever seen a smoker's lungs? Separate from the body? Not very nice. So lungs are, you know, pink blobs of flesh attached to a tube of cartilage. They're not very pretty at all. But without them, you're not alive. So you need them. You need both. With the lungs you get air, but the air you get through... uh, So you must have both. You must have both. So a society, any kind of society, is an interactive way that human beings live together so that you can get that thing which is most precious. And here, Narada Muni is giving instructions so that Yudhishthira will understand that the most important thing is Krishna consciousness. Now consciousness, you can't put it on a plate, you can't cut it, you can't examine it. But society, you can. Consciousness, you can't organize. You know, where will you, where's consciousness? How will you organize it? But a society for the promotion of a certain type of consciousness, you can. When the uh, Krishna Avanti school uh, first opened, uh, there was uh, many complaints that in general these faith schools, a uh, school where the ethos is uh, religion and the discipline is based on a religious scripture, these in general are a very bad thing for society because it separates people, one faith separate from another, separate from another. But on the other hand, the government knows that when you have a faith school, a school with a religious basis, then the children turn out well-disciplined and they become good members of society. And on average, on average, a faith school will deliver a higher academic achievement. So the government knows that faith schools are a good idea, but the liberal leftist social commentators think that it's a very bad idea. And anyway, so the government gives money to these faith schools. So when someone asked me, my point was that all schools are faith schools. All schools are faith schools. In every school there's an ethos where you have faith in something. Whether it's a God or whether you have faith that there's no God, it's faith. Whether you have faith in religion or whether you have faith in something called science, which is just... um, an idea really that's 300 years old. 300 years, 400 years, this idea that religion is something separate from science. 
In India, when you go to India, you'll find uh, physicists working on a nuclear reactor and the PhD graduates, of course, in, in physics and mathematicians. And uh, I saw a picture once, and they've all got TLAC on. And they, every single one of them working in the nuclear reactor believes in God. Well, I guess if you're going to believe, you know, if you're going to work in a nuclear reactor, you might as well believe in God. But the point was that um, they saw no uh, problem in belief in God and using science, because this is the uh, Vedic tradition that science is knowledge, religion is knowledge, and we understand that they work together. They're never meant to be separate. You try and separate the lungs from the oxygen, you've got problems. So society today is choking. We are choking because we don't have, firstly, a clear conception of what society is meant for achieving, what the highest level of consciousness that we can develop. After the Second World War, what has happened is that the different countries, the leaders of different countries have got together and we said, look, millions of people died because of different political ideas. Millions of people died because there was different racial ideas. Millions of people died because there was different ideas on religion. So what we'll try to do after the Second World War is to create a, uh, a united world where these things are subjugated to being a, uh, uh, of lesser importance. And the rules will be that we will try to find the common humanity between us without religion, because religion divides. So here you have a problem. And the problem has, is fully matured. The problem is fully matured now, I would say, in Europe, in that you have a situation where religion is actively being ruled out of um, constitutional development, political life, working life, so that even in a country where you have a very strong Christian foundation, it has become anathema, so to speak, to wear any uh, uh, religious attire at all, any religious badges, any insignia whatsoever. So from one position, we've gone to completely the other position, which is generally speaking what societies which are predominantly in the mode of passion do. You go from one extreme to the other extreme. And ultimately, what societies have decided to do is that there shall be no head. There shall be no thinking head. So the head of society is merchants, and basically whoever the merchants think is fit to increase the level of merchandising, you see. Which means that what the politicians talk about basically is budget, uh, the market, uh, and how to balance the market, how to stimulate economic growth, how to get people shopping again. I watched Obama give what would have been a brilliant speech, <laughs> great rhetorician, if that's the right word, what is the word, Maharaj? If, you, if you're good with rhetoric, you're a rhetorician or rhetorician? Or just a good speaker? <laughs> Very good speaker. Very good speaker. Knew how to punch the air. Knew how to apply the law of threes. Uh, knew how to wind everything up to a crescendo to get people clapping. It was very interesting. He was following the speech pattern of Martin Luther King 
Very interesting in, in the famous, I may not get there speech. But anyway, the main thing was jobs. This is the ultimate goal. The ultimate salvation for America in our next term is jobs. See? But then the conclusion of the speech is, God bless America. So, if God blesses America, maybe God himself has some ideas about how to organize human society. And human society doesn't just mean medieval India. It means 21st century America. It means 21st century Europe. So these ideas have relevance. These ideas actually do have political relevance for today. And maybe we can even incorporate them into ISKCON. See, ISKCON is not only mixing the ashrams unwittingly, but also paying no attention to varnas. That's why all around the ISKCON world, you'll find that Brahmins begging from Brahmins. Now we want to build the new temple in Mayapur. So we'll send the sannyasis out to beg from other sannyasis and see if the disciples can do something. You see? So how, how can sannyasis beg from sannyasis? They're all meant to have nothing. We have to beg from those who've got the funds to deliver. That means the grihastas. So let's beg from the Iskon Grihastas. Let's see if they can build the big temple in Mayapur. Oh dear. Well, the Iskon Grihastas have got nothing. Well, why have they got nothing? Prabhupada said, right through Prabhupada's books, we find that the Grihastas are meant to support the Brahmacharis and the Sannyasis. This is a conundrum. So when we have Grihastas living as if they were Brahmacharis, living as if they were Sannyasis, that may be good emergency dharma, but for the long-term future development, our ISKCON movement needs Grihastas who are blessed <laughs> with the Ukutramon of Grihastas, which means land and money. And in order to have that, you must have education. Now, this is a society meant for delivering pure devotional service. How are we going to do that? How will we do that? Since everyone who has come is being requested to take pretty much vows of poverty. Pretty much. Prabhupada said, oh, my disciples are like bed bugs. Said, my disciples are like bed bugs. He said, a bed bug is living in the Dharmshala all through winter. No one is coming. He said, but when spring comes and the pilgrims start coming, and then the bed bug has a feast, and then immediately he's filled with blood. He said, so my disciples, they give up business. Huh? They give up business. But then when it is time for them to immediately, they get very enthusiastically back into business. But somebody has to give money to a society which is meant for spreading God consciousness. Therefore, Prabhupada said it was the members of the society. And what does that mean? It means that we have different types of members. And members fall into different categories. Some members have taken vows. And some members have not. And it would seem that if it would be in our interest to uh, uh, care for those members who have not taken vows, 
The members who have taken vows care for those who have not taken vows. You see? That means there's a lot of people just waiting to be supportive of our ISKCON movement. A lot of people. Not just Indian community, the Western community also, Russian community, American community. You see? Otherwise, what will happen is, and we hear this very much in America and Western Europe, uh, people say, oh, Prabhupada's movement is becoming Hinduized. Prabhupada's movement is becoming Indianized. There's so many Indians in our movement now. Yes. <laughs> and they're supporting our movement. Is that a problem? Well, it's a problem if that changes the essential character of the movement so that the next generation will not be able to take forward pure devotional service. So we have a problem there. So either the solution is to take everyone who's now supporting us and to turn them into supporters, or that they support us and we take forward the movement to the English-speaking people and the French and the German-speaking people, etc., etc. We must not lose sight of that goal. But how will that happen? Well, that means that different types of person has to be accommodated. Different type of people have to be accommodated. And in Varna Ashram society, people are of different ashrams. And many of those people will be working. So they will be turning to the devotees of this Krishna conscious movement for advice on how to be Krishna conscious in their homes. And if the first advice that you give them is, oh, come and live at the temple, then that may not be practical for them. You see? Those persons who are young enough and detached enough to come away from a particular ashram situation, yes, with great enthusiasm we should encourage them. But there may be many, many more who need good advice on how to practice Krishna consciousness in their homes. So, uh, and, and good Varna advice. When Chanakya Pandit was uh, conscripted by the king Chandragupta to uh, give him advice, he gave him advice on how to be a good governor, even though he was a Brahmin. See, the thing is that the Brahmins teach. The Brahmins teach. They may not do warfare, but they can teach it. It wasn't like the, you know, not like today. You can teach something, but you don't necessarily do it. This is Brahmin. It means you teach the science of doing something, but you don't necessarily engage. So you can, you can teach many, many different things. And when a young boy, usually, would become a Brahmachari, Brahmachari meant two things. To learn about science and to learn about religion. Because don't forget, they were fused in a package. And sometimes what we have done is to separate the package, see, religion and science. I went to a Gurukula in, well, I didn't go to a Gurukula, but I visited one in South India. And I said, what are you, I spoke to the brahmacharis there, I said, what are you learning? He said, oh, well, in the morning we learn uh, puja, fayagya, and shastra. I said, in the afternoon? He said, we learn accounting and computers. I said, oh, that's interesting. So what are you going to do when you grow up? And he kind of looked at me and he, and he said, well, I'm 
going to be, obviously, I'm going to do what I'm being trained to do. So uh, this idea of fusing religion at the science of something, the craft of something, the career of something. And if we say to people in ISKCON, well, this is a preaching movement, then we have to preach. So your future career is to preach. Then let's give every brahmachari a preaching future. Let's not turn them into grihastas. If that's really what you want, that you want brahmacharis who will remain brahmacharis for life, let's make it easy for them. Let's give them space to do what they do. Let's give them education to do what they do. Let's give them the money to do what they want to do for the rest of their life, if we really believe that. You see, because some people do want to remain brahmachari for life, and that's all right. But make it easy for them. They should be supported. You see? So money should be channeled into helping brahmacharis have a career where they can care for the needs, spiritual needs of others, if that's what they wish to do. And let's make it easy on those who want to become grihastas. Those who want to become grihastas, you better make your mind up quick. Because you may be working according to the spiritual clock, but your body and mind are working according to the biological clock. So you better make your mind up quick. The difficulty is that brahmachari means eight years old. And brahmachari life finishes at 25. That's brahmachari life. That's the life that Narad Muni is talking in here. Now, many, many people join us at the age of 25. Hooray! That's wonderful for them. But they get very confused at the age of 35. You see? So how to resolve the confusion? Well, one generation, two generations, three generations, you may not do that. But ultimately, this movement has to begin capturing people a little bit younger. The average age of a... I joined when I was 17. 16, I became interested in Krishna consciousness. 17, I was walking around in orange with hair down to here. I was out doing book distribution. I was wearing a saffron dhoti kurta with hair right down here. Those were the days. <laughs> Back to Mick, Prabhu. Don't forget the Prabhu. <laughs> so now, people wait for three years before they put on saffron. Okay. That may be all right. That's something. But it wasn't the original idea. But <laughs> they wait. Then you wait six years before you're initiated. Okay. Then you want to get married, but perhaps you can't get married because... You're not initiated. And the temple president says, well, we can't marry you if you're not initiated. Or he says something else. Well, you can't get married because you can't support a wife. So we have problems there. We have problems. It would be much easier. It would be much easier if everyone was simply brahmachai and went straight forward to sannyas. Unfortunately, there are people who persist in making this movement difficult. Very difficult. So Prabhupada knew that, and therefore he wrote about it. And I suppose the comment might be is that we read these books, but sometimes we think that Varnashram is something for Vedic culture. 
whenever that Vedic culture is, we're not quite sure. Or medieval Bengali India. But not for me, not for Iskon, and not for now. But sometime, sooner or later, should we not read Prabhupada's purports as if he's speaking to us? As if what he's describing in here, which he took years and years and years to write, was actually meant for reorganizing human society in some way, beginning with us? That would be an interesting proposal, wouldn't it? Maybe after a few generations we could seriously think about it. I'm not trying to be a... Um, Let's say sometimes we have people who are brahmacharis or sannyasis who are very enthusiastic about their own particular ashram. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about the Grihasta ashram, I must tell you. It's not easy. And I, one thing I can tell you is I've experienced two ashrams pretty much that they're the, the same level of difficulty. <laughs> same level of difficulty. People think, one time I, when I was, uh, shortly before I changed my ashram, uh, a sannyasi who um, I love very much, who is now, as they say in the Christian church, gone on to glory. He's now passed away. He said, he said I don't think you should change ashram. He said, uh, he said you know, Grihastas, um, it's all... Pizza parties. It's all pizza parties. Well, you know, I was, I was 24 years old. I'd grown up in Cornwall. And I'd joined Escon at 17. I didn't know what a pizza was. I'd never had pizza in my life before. So he was sort of creating for me this abstract notion of pizza equals sense gratification. You know. So the first time someone um, gave me a piece of pizza, I think it was on a some one of these big festivals in Eastern Europe, I said, oh, really, are we allowed? <laughs> now it's standard fare, isn't it, Lolita? So he was trying to paint a picture that um, Grihastha life is unadulterated sense gratification, spiritual confusion. But, you know, according to this, it's one of the four ashrams, which... I think, were created by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Maybe that's why it's in the Nigamakalpa Tarur Galitam Falam Shastra. Maybe that's why we're reading about it here, because he is taking time to speak about it. Not that everyone should rush out tomorrow and dye their clothing, but if you are a brahmachari, that means with great encouragement you can speak to people about their ashram, but you have to know how they should be living. Because most people, if you're a brahmachari preacher, will ask you questions, how can I be Krishna conscious with my wife, at home, with the children, with my job? And you better be able to answer those questions. One time I had a weekend with um, Catholic priests and um, we were talking about what they get taught because they're celibate and the notion is celibate for life and that's fine. Um, but they get taught how to teach married people. So I says, isn't that a conflict for you, that you're celibate and you've got to, you know, you, he said, no. He said, it's because 99% of the world is married in some form or another, so we've got to be able to deliver our religious teachings to those people. 
Now, how am I going to function in society if I can't do that? And sometimes the notion is that people who come to ISKCON are sometimes somehow beyond society. But this is another tradition. This is called a contemplative tradition, where you go into a monastery or a convent and you shut yourself away from people, and there you, you know, you um, shed tears of ecstasy as you read the books and you chant your prayers and fast and do all these things. But the point is that um, this is a preaching movement. This is a preaching movement. This is a place where the monastery and the convent is a base, as Prabhupada said, not for eating and sleeping or even ecstatic crying, but it's a base for going out and dealing with the world. See, Shastra will always give you two things. One is how to become completely pure. And the other is how to uh, organize society. How, to, how society should be organized so that at least people have a very slim chance of becoming pure. This is the thing, that everybody should be able to move forward lifetime after lifetime. And the sadhus are meant to go out and uh, speak uh, to people. Sadhu means a person who is leading a good life. They're meant to be able to deal with people. So sadhu means... Uh, Grihasta uh, uh, also. All types of person can preach. Therefore, Prabhupada said this movement is for all classes of devotees to join together to preach to the world. This is the important thing. So in Shastra, we find these two things. Principles of social organization, which the Brahmins are called upon and the Sadhus are called upon to help with. That means if a, it's like um, the other day I was uh, uh, I found myself at a in a in, get this inside a synagogue sitting at a service sitting next to our local member of parliament. There's only 600 of them in the country, and you know they're in charge of helping the country to be organised. So we were discussing. And I was thinking, what can I say? There's like congressman or senator? One of them. Congressman? Who's your elected representative? Senator. senator. Okay, so he's a senator. Parliament senator. Yeah, he's a senator. Okay, so he's a senator. So what does a guy in a dhoti and a kurta and, you know, clay on his forehead say to um, a member of parliament inside someone else's religious building that will help him uh, move forward. So you have to find things to say. You have to find things to say. Something interesting. And Narada Muni, one thing we do find out about Narada Muni is that whoever he's with, he asks them their needs, interests, concerns, and expectations. To kings, he says, how's the treasury? How's your citizens? To Brahmins, he says, uh, how's your Shastra learning? How's your teaching? How's the, uh, how's the, how, how are you doing in your struggle over the cycle of birth and death? Uh, to a suja, Narada Muni says, is your master caring for you well? To a Vaisha, Narada Muni says, so how is it, how's it going in your, uh, how's the crops? How's the farming? How's your workers? 
And to a man who kills animals, what does Narada Muni say? He says, all right, go on killing them. Hmm? Here we have the, another tricky Narada Muni. You go on killing them, but kill them completely. Don't half kill them. He takes the principle upon which the person was working. He thinks of the next higher principle and helps him to move up. You see? So we have a great mission. We have a great mission. We have to help the leaders and thinkers of society to organize society. That means that everything that you're learning in Prabhupada's books, can you sit at a dinner table with a politician, a multimillionaire businessman who's not a Hindu, a rock star, a film star, a leading journalist, hmm? And can you have something intelligent to say? Can you sit with a mother who's just lost her children, just lost a child in a, in a great family tragedy? Can you sit next to that person and say something that comes from Prabhupada's teachings? Because if you can't, what use are you to anybody in society? You may be able to sell a book. That's very nice. You're a book salesman. That's very good. But can you read the book and understand what's in it and know how to present it in such a way that it has relevance to the person who's suffering? That has relevance to the person who's now standing in front of you thinking, maybe this guy's got something interesting to say. Because if you can't, if you have nothing to say, then what's all this teaching? What are all the Bhagavatam classes for? Yes, you will transcend. And I would say you can be very assured that if you go on doing what you're doing at the end of this life then a wonderful destination awaits you that's fine for your own salvation but we're not salvationists we're teachers preachers we're people who want to compassionately reach out to others in the line of chaitanya mahaprabhu yes chaitanya mahaprabhu could preach to the lowest in society but he could preach to the highest also sometimes this principle is very much at work in iskon isn't it Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said to reach out to the lowest in society. What does that mean? Food for life. Let's reach out to the lowest in society because that's what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would do. He would reach out to the lowest of society and solve their suffering. What, how are they suffering? They're hungry. Let's feed them. But can you, can you be with a person who's not hungry, who may not like your food, but who may, we did a survey some years ago, and uh, it was a survey involving uh, uh, all over the United Kingdom. And we asked them, uh, what do the books and teachings of the Hare Krishna movement mean to you? And some people just shrugged their shoulders. It wasn't us, it was a professional company who did it, Gallup. They do surveys of, you know, just to, for companies, they, they find out how your product is going. And so they said, um, the uh, the lower social economic groups said uh, the Hare Krishnas could teach us how to be peaceful. You know, they were very much interested in the love and peace that the Hare Krishnas seemed to exude. Okay? And uh, the A's and the B's of society, the top level, uh, they said we're very interested in how the teachings can give us a, a fresh perspective. So, what is that fresh perspective? Narada Muni's perspective is very interesting. That you should stay in 
your varna and ashram, and you should do your duty. But at the same time, verse 67, you should develop the highest level of consciousness. So how to do that is the essence of this teaching. And this is what this movement is meant to be preaching. Thank you very much. I've kept you very long time. We have ranged over many subjects. I ask for your blessings. Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai.